I love the subtitle for your series, Faith in Motion. It, it suggests the, the, the construct of the book of James, which is, look, if we're going to believe in God and believe in what he says and believe in the truths that are written in this amazing book and the person of Jesus actually came, there's an action that is precipitated by that. There's things that are going to be put into play. Uh, what I find interesting as we dig into the last part of the passage, it talks about an area I find kind of challenging, which is prayer. It's a, a vital part of the Christian experience, but it also can be really challenging. And when we're talking about putting things in motion, what I have found myself is the things I'm really good at, I like to keep doing. And the things that I'm not so good at, I either avoid or just kind of dread. Anybody like that? Is you know, like there's certain things around the house I'm really good at painting, I like to paint, but electrical stuff, I'll burn the house down, right? So, you know, it's like, uh, and I wonder if prayer isn't the same thing, uh, that sometimes we kind of feel very awkward about it or just doesn't like work well for us. And we just kind of like avoid exercising it or developing it because we're not so good at it. In fact, when I think about prayer, I can think of times when God's really been at work and I've prayed specifically for things and I've seen them happen. <clears throat> and it's beautiful. I want to keep doing it. Let me give you a couple of quick ones in my own life. Back many years ago, I was living in Delaware and I had just become a pastor. I was actually working uh, at the time in Philadelphia, before I became a pastor, I was working in Philadelphia in the communications business. I was actually a journalist before I became a pastor, and I loved that part of my life. But then a guy called me into ministry, and I worked as an associate pastor in Delaware for a while. And then I felt God calling me to Northern Virginia to pastor a church there that I pastor now. But there was a huge obstacle because right at the time I was called to move from Delaware to Virginia, my daughter was born with a congenital heart defect. And we were like, she was in and out of the hospital seven times, and I had four other sons, and we were trying to kind of make this thing work, and I would drive from Delaware down to Northern Virginia every weekend just to keep things rolling. And after a while, we thought, look, God's got to open a door for us to get down there with medical insurance because I was part of a regional HMO that didn't have insurance coverage in Northern Virginia, and I was going to have to pay for open-heart surgery. And I just want to be honest with you, I have a lot of faith, but I didn't have the faith to pay for Hannah's open-heart surgery out of pocket. I just want to get full disclosure there. I was like, you know, I think this just might put too much financial burden on the family if we go into open-heart surgery and uh, not be able to pay for it. And long story short, we kept praying, we kept praying. This took a whole year. And finally, we got to the point where we had put our house on the market in Delaware. We had a contract offer on it. And the insurance company, we tried all sorts of things and nothing, nothing happened until one day, the insurance guy working the situation with us said, look, I think that you can transfer from your regional HMO to Anthem Blue Cross of Blue Shield 
uh, because it's the parent company. I think it's going to work. You just have to contact them. So I contacted them, and they said, uh, Mr. Blum, I don't think it's going to work. I said, yes, it is going to work because my house is on the market. I got a contract on it. And I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to drive from Delaware down to Richmond, Virginia, and I'm going to knock on your front door, and we're going to have a conversation. And the lady was a little bit shocked by this. She said, Mr. Blum, we're an insurance company. We don't talk to people in person. And I said, you might be a big insurance company, but I got a bigger God. I think we're going to have a conversation. And so I packed up Vanessa, and, and, and we went down there. And I kid you not, this is before cell phones, people. There was existence before cell phones. And I'm going into Richmond, and I park the car on the outskirts of, of Richmond, and I get on a payphone, and I call up the lady. And she says, Mr. Blum, where are you? I said, I'm in Richmond. I'm only a mile or two away. She's put me, she said, can I put you on hold? I said, fine. She comes back a few minutes later and she says, Mr. Blum, there's no need for you to come into the office today. We've actually just signed off on your insurance transfer to Anthem Blue Cross of Blue Shield of Virginia. You'll get the paperwork. You can sign it. And you guys can clap because I consider that some really big answer to prayer. Now, I've had a lot of times where I've actually prayed specifically for things to happen, and they just don't seem to happen. And here's how I feel like when that happens. Uh, do you have a pen? If you have a pen, grab a pen, please. Grab one. And how many of you are uh, right-handed? Raise your right hand if you're right-handed, dominantly right-handed. How many of you are left-handed? All right, please. Yeah, it's a, it's a good percentage. Uh, you, you are in your right mind. I understand that, but my wife is left-handed, so we have multiple conversations over uh, this issue. How many of you are ambidextrous? We have one. Give, give her some love. Okay, so anyways, what I want you to do is take your non-dominant hand, and I want you to write your name and your cell phone number, okay? You don't have to share it with anybody. I'm not asking you to do that. But I, it has to be your non-dominant hand, and I want you to try as best as you can to write your name and your cell phone number. Okay, keep, keep, keep this going. If you, don't, if you can't remember your name, please ask the person next to you. Okay. Vanessa tells me that when she was growing up as a left-handed person, the, the teacher that taught the, them to write always taught them how to write right-handed, which doesn't work with a left-handed person, so she claims that she's had to work through a bunch of issues with that. Okay, so I'm almost done. All right, now, go, show that to somebody next year, please. Okay, uh, mine looks very bad. But uh, here's the thing. Uh, and, and I want to press in on the book of James because I think this is the thing. <clears throat> None of you here will probably start using your non-dominant hand to write. Is that probably true? All right. It's awkward. It's time-consuming. 
Okay. What if you injured your dominant hand? At that particular point, and, and it, out of necessity, you would make the transition. I think oftentimes we approach prayer the same way. It's not comfortable. I don't feel really good at it. When I do it, it's awkward. Uh, sometimes I see results, sometimes I don't. And really, honestly, I've got the option to pursue it or not. I, I think the scripture is teaching us something different. We do not have the option of not getting better at prayer. It's not an option. It's a necessity. But it's a vital necessity because when we get better at it, God works and does things that uh, allow us to enjoy a relationship with him in a deeper way, to advance the kingdom better, and to actually see God at work in ways that he wouldn't have done without us. I like what St. Augustine said. He said, look, you got to remember, without God, we cannot do anything but without our involvement, sometimes God chooses not to work. Think about that. There are things God would do if only we would act on it, if only we would put our faith in motion, if only we would pray. And that's what we're going to dig into today and look at some examples. If you have a Bible, you can turn to me. You can see the notes, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must what? If anyone among you is suffering, then he must go find some social media outlet and get it out there. No? If anyone among you is suffering, he should retreat, go into a hole, isolate? No? If anyone among you is suffering, he should become angry and bitter? No. What must he do? Say it. One word. Say it nice and loud. He must. Is anyone cheerful? He is to. Help me out. He is to what? Sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church. And they are to pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Let me just pause there for a second. Uh, by the way, I'm, uh, I don't have time to explore the whole thing of, okay, well, what's faith? And the prayer often in faith will heal him. I, I think we have to be careful to assume this, that everything we think should happen is faith-based just because we think it'll happen. Faith to me is dependent on the object that you're trusting in. We, we can't see ahead of time. We don't know and understand all of God's perfect will. But we have desires and we have thoughts and we have feelings. And certainly if someone's sick and suffering, uh, a legitimate expression of that is to pray about it. And, of course, a legitimate expression from James is to sometime call the elders and pray. I think the impetus is on the person who is sick, not on the elders. By the way, I've had times where people have come to me as a pastor, as an elder, and said, look, I'm really suffering, and will you pray over me? Uh, I was very glad to, but I didn't consider 
the prompting to have to be from me. It had to be from them. And I said to them ahead of time, look, I'm not sure you can see God's perfect will, but let's get it to the Lord. Let's pray about it and see what his response is. And so I think it's a beautiful expression, probably an underutilized one. And I don't want to create a theological construct. I just want to say this is, is that, that this is a legitimate way at times to bring our suffering and pain to the Lord. I had a fellow young man uh, much earlier in my ministry who had Crohn's disease. And he was in his 20s and he suffered greatly from it. And he came to me and to another pastor that I was with, and he said, look, I've tried all sorts of medical things, and this thing's just not going away. And will you guys anoint me with oil and pray for me? And we did within six months. It was eventually healed, and he's lived the rest of his life for 40 years without Crohn's disease. Now, there are people who have Crohn's disease that don't see that prayer answered. It might be in this audience. And so what I don't want to do is create this framework where we think just because I think it should happen, God's required to make it happen. But I do think there's this reality that God wants us to bring these desires to the Lord, and he's given us avenues to do it, sometimes privately, sometimes with other followers of Jesus and friends and family, and yes, sometimes with other leaders of the church. Don't be afraid to do it. I've prayed with people, and they didn't get healed, but I'll tell you what, it's allowed me to enter into their pain because they invited me in. Does that make sense? And sometimes the healing that we experience is not the physical. Sometimes it's the relational where we know we're not going through this alone, where we actually have another human being that cares deeply about the pain and the hurt and the disappointment of our life. And I don't have to go through this disappointment by myself. There's another person that's entered into this and is journeying with me. Even if it never changes, they're there with me. Men and women, this is a beautiful thing. And it's a powerful testimony to an unbelieving world that, look, you guys, if you don't know Jesus, please know Jesus. Trust in him. Come in. Take the step of faith because there's a community of followers of him that journey through life together, up and down and in between, and and people don't bail on each other when it doesn't work. Okay. Verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. This kind of healing uh, in the Bible, the Greek word can refer to physical, can refer to emotional and relational healing. It can refer to all of those things, inner healing, external healing. That kind of healing is possible. And he says, look, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another. And then he says this, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So uh, the first thing I'd like to kind of dig into in this section of the, the Scripture is this. 
The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. There's an adjective to prayer there which is effective. It's the Greek word energeo, which is where we get the English word energy. And it means a person who's skilled at work, who is operating in a... uh, accomplished way to produce something. It means to put forth power. Uh, It's the same word that's used in another scripture where Paul said to the Thessalonians, look, you accepted the word of God, not just as the word of men, but the word which is from God, which also performs its work, energeo, in you who believe. And so I think the challenge for us and the encouragement is if we can get the next slide up, is that prayer does work, but we need to work at prayer. You don't and I don't, as followers of Jesus, have the option of putting prayer in the trunk and never opening up the trunk. We can do that, but we'll have lifeless, listless, lack of energy kind of faith. It's vital to the, the energy that God wants us to experience. Prayer works, but we work at prayer. We need to develop the skill. We need to take our non-dominant hand, and we need to learn how to write effectively. We need to take that which is not natural. By the way, most I, I will say this. I've been a follower of Jesus for about 45 years. And I would say that at most, 5% of the believers I've ever been connected to would say, I feel like prayer comes naturally to me. It's probably 95% say, look, it's really hard. It's really challenging. I want to give up. It's really not something that just kind of like I wake up every morning and say, yippee-ki-yay, prayer time, let's go for it. So we work at it, we cultivate it, we develop a skill, we sharpen the saw, and we get better, not in just our own strength, but clearly through our own choices. Let me give you some scriptures to identify that. Uh, Acts chapter 12. Peter, in fact, let me read the, the story briefly to you. Acts chapter 12 is an interesting section. It goes, it starts like this. About the time that Herod the king laid about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. Is anyone among you suffering? The church was suffering in Jerusalem at this time. There was intense pressure being placed on them. And Herod had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And he puts him in prison. It's during the feast. And then it goes on to say this. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God, by the church to God. It was, how was it being made? Prayer was being made. What's the adverb? Prayer was being made what? Say it louder. Prayer was being made. 
Say it fervently. Prayer was being made. There is an intentionality behind it. In fact, uh, we're going to look at two other examples and then show you the words that are used here. Fervently is the first one. In the book of Colossians chapter 4, Paul is talking about one of his co-laborers, Epaphras, and it says that Epaphras was always laboring earnestly for them in his prayers. And of course, we have the example of Jesus in the garden where he was being, being in agony, he was praying very fervently in the garden of Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal before his crucifixion. Here are the three Greek words used. The first one is ektenos, ektenos, which means to earnestly, intensely stretch out the hand. So when Peter was in prison, the church was praying ektenos with fervency for him. In fact, it seemed to be an all-night prayer meeting. Because by the time Peter was miraculously released from prison and finally got to the house where they were praying, and they didn't recognize him, and the lady who answered the door said, don't come in, we're praying for Peter. And Peter said, that's me. And she got kind of like flipped out in a good way on that, and they came in and they celebrated. It seemed like they were praying. Now, I don't know if this is true, and I don't want to impose it on the Scripture, but think about it. When James was beheaded, there's no reference to the church praying. And I wonder if they just didn't get caught blindsided and thought, man, things are really ramping up here. One of Jesus' 12 disciples just got beheaded. They're going to come after us, and they've taken Peter into prison, and guess what's going to happen to him if we don't do something, and that something was praying, and not just praying, but praying fervently with ectonos. Epaphras, who was laboring earnestly in his prayers, uh, that word laboring earnestly is uh, agonizomai, which means to do so with intentionality and stirring it up. And with a, a, with a uh, it's the same word that would be used to enter a contest or compete in the games or contend with your enemies. That's the kind of fervency that he had. It's, it's, it's like a sports team or an individual who's competing in the games. They don't go in listlessly, and they certainly don't go in without practicing ahead of time so that when they're competing, they're competing with skill and vibrancy and effectiveness. And by the way, it also suggests this. You're going to have defeats along the way. So you learn from the pain. You learn from the loss. And how many of us have not thought after the fact, man, I wonder if I just had prayed more effectively, something might have happened. In fact, I want to challenge you and me with something. It's actually, I don't recommend books on prayer. And I'll tell you why. Because people read them and then they don't pray. And they think just by reading the book, they're getting better at prayer. That, and so I rarely, rarely recommend them. Uh, there's a book that really challenged me in the area of prayer. It's called Moving Mountains by John Eldridge. And he begins it this way with a tag called A Disrupt Disruptive But Hopeful Truth. 
let's go ahead, he said, let's name the elephant in the room. Some prayers work and some don't. Does that surprise and irritate us? Some diets work, most don't. No one's not surprised by that. We keep looking for the one that works for us. Some investments produce and others don't. You keep looking for the one that works best for you. Some schools are effective. Some ways of homeschooling are effective. Some are not. But we keep finding the right situation that's right for our child. There is a way that things work. The same with prayer. Are there times when God absolutely says no? Yes. Sorry for the, you know. there are, there are, you got it. There are times when God says no. We accept it, we embrace it, we, it's not easy, but we say, look, no matter how hard I pray, this is just not going to happen. But I want to be honest with you. I think there are times when we stop praying and God doesn't answer because we haven't prayed intentionally, fervently, passionately long enough. And I'll give you a construct for that from Scripture that's consistent with the book of James. It's actually Elijah himself in 1 Kings. 1 Kings says this about Elijah. There was a time it says he, you know, he said, look, I'm going to pray it doesn't rain for three and a half years. By the way, that wasn't Elijah's idea. That was distinct divine will from God. In other words, it wasn't like this name it, claim it thing where you wake up and say, look, I can claim anything I want to. Look, you ought to claim whatever God is claiming about a situation, and I'm going to get into that in a second. But Elijah was praying God's will in a situation that was revealed to him. He didn't come up with the idea. God did, and so he prayed for it. But then after three and a half years, God said, look, Elijah, I want you to pray because it's my will that it rains again. And here's how it happens. Elijah said to the king Ahab, who didn't believe in God, who was a wicked king, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. Ahab, guess what? God's going to bring rain, and he's going to show you his sovereignty and his power and his awesomeness because for three and a half years, it hasn't rained because of your wickedness. And now is the time that God's going to show up. And here's how God first decides to show up. Ahab goes to eat and drink, but Elijah goes up to the mount, top of Mount Carmel and he crouches down on the earth, and he puts his face between his knees. He goes into prayer posture. He doesn't sit on top of Mount Carmel and say, boom, God, do this. He gets down on his knees. He crouches down. He's in maybe a fetal position. And he says to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So the servant went up and looked and said, there's nothing. Nada, zippo. In fact, the servant might have been thinking, bad idea. <laughs> it's not working. Let's not, let's, no, let's not do this. I got better things to do. 
So he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And then Elijah says to him, go back. How many more times? Anybody know this story? How many more times did the servant come and say, nothing, nada. And what did Elijah do? He kept crouching. He kept praying, Mike, you're an elder pastor in the church. You got it. How many? Seven more times. And I don't think it was every 30 seconds. And it came about after the seventh time, which probably means there were eight total, behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower doesn't stop you. A little bit of sarcasm, by the way. Elijah had a little bit of a sarcastic tendency. He kind of like, you know, little divine twist there. And then, of course, it poured, poured. You know what I wonder? I, I just I want you to ask yourself this. Would God have still brought the rain if after the third time Elijah said, nuts to this, prayer doesn't work? I can't answer it for you. Theologically, maybe God would have, but he would have used another instrument. And if he used another instrument, Elijah would have missed out on the blessing of persevering in earnest, fervent, ectonos prayer. But I'm not a lot like Elijah in one sense, and I am in one sense. I'm a lot like Elijah because it says in James he had a nature just like ours. So here's the thought. He wasn't wired to just be a natural prayer. He was writing with his left hand or his right hand if you're left. He learned the skill of approaching God in prayer. And he didn't give up after the third or fourth time. He didn't bail on it, go to Starbucks and post on Facebook, God doesn't answer prayer. He pushed through it, and he got to a place where it did. There are times when God wants to tell us to let go, stop praying for that thing, and move on. Yes. But there are times when God says, look, I want you to learn a little bit about ectonos and about fervent prayer and about a a God, uh, you know, Ego, whatever, how you pronounce the other one, which is the Greek word, which means agony. And I think that we can do that. In fact, here's, let me give you a couple of takeaways and then I'll wrap it up. I think that one of the best ways to start doing this is to learn to align ourselves with what God wants. Eldridge goes on to write in his book, an old saint who first taught me to pray would often say, when you think you're finished praying, you're probably just getting warmed up. And then he says, when we first turn to prayer, we must begin to tune and align ourselves with God as his partners. As we press into prayer, we're not simply begging God to move, but we're partnering with him in bringing his kingdom to bear on the need at hand. Enforcing that kingdom often requires much staying with it. And so I think this alignment with God is beautiful and and important. we, We get with God and we say, God, this isn't about me. 
And it's not just about my desires, though my desires are part of it, but I'm going to align myself with what you want, and would you help me understand what you want me to pray? And I'm willing to pray anything you want me to pray. We pray fervently and with skill. And here's the other suggestion I have. Don't try to build huge amounts of time for extra prayer. Take the time that you already have and make the most of it. And maybe the first thing we need to do is just pray the cry of our own heart. Do you know that the cry of your own heart is a prayer that God loves to hear? Unfiltered, un, uh, you, you know, like have you ever just prayed, God, like life really sucks? Or this is just really the pits? Or God, you just don't seem to have shown up right now? Or where are the miracles and how long is this going to happen? And where on God's green earth are you? Because there is pain and suffering and I do not see you showing up. That is an okay, beautiful prayer to start with. Because the psalmist prayed it over and over. Read the psalms and over and over. The psalmist is saying, look, God, have you forgotten about me? And then it leads him into an alignment of his heart to God's will. And then he starts to say, but God, what are you teaching me? What are you showing me? What's your will in this situation? And by the end of the psalm, He's got a different orientation and a different perspective and a different beauty and a different reality. And so we learn the cry of the heart. We learn to give praise and thanksgiving. And then we learn to align our hearts with God. And then we learn, lastly, to lock arms with other people and just pray. And here's my last challenge for you. Take the time that you already have with other followers of Jesus and just incorporate a little bit more prayer or more fervent prayer into it. Because we like to talk and we like to study and we like to share stuff and that's beautiful, but sometimes just ingesting that prayer, and I'll give you an example in my own life. I'm with a men's group. It's called Iron Men. Brad is one of them here. And we got together every Thursday night, so we dig into the Word and Scripture, and we'd share prayer requests, and that was cool. One thing I've observed about followers of Jesus, we spend way more time sharing the request than praying for them. Anybody ever noticed that? <laughs> it's like you take 25 minutes, everybody, and then you have two minutes for the prayer. Well, we decided one month a week, we're one, did I say one month a week? One week a month, <laughs> one week a month. We're going to do this. Instead of like have our regular thing, we're going to gather around a fire pit and we're just going to have an old-fashioned sing-scripture song, crank up the fire pit, and pray our socks off meeting, and then close it off with communion. And it's been one of the most beautiful things. Like, not fancy, not figured out. It's just like, get together. And we didn't have to add another meeting. We just cut out something and said, look, we're going to put something better in that space. 
And whatever it is that you have, whatever network you have, whatever connections you have in social media or in person or whatever, look, just find a ways to incorporate more fervent, intentional, aligning with God kind of prayer. And don't be afraid to invite other people into it if you're suffering and you're in need. And if it doesn't get answered, you go through it together. That's all I got for you. Is it something? Do you got something out of that? That's all I got for you because I'm running out of time and I want you guys to just take what James says and put it into play. Figure out a way to put it into play with skill, with passion. And when you do it with skill and passion, you'll have greater joy. God bless you. Let me pray. Let me bring the team up. Let me uh, just kind of encourage us all. What's your last song? Joy to the world. Joy to the world. So, uh, hey, I want you to do this. As, you, as they're getting ready, I want you to stand up, and I want you to just think of one time. Go ahead. You can stand up now. And I want you to think of either one time God's answered prayer, because it's easy to remember what he doesn't answer, I want you to think of one time he's answered prayer, and I want you to just really be joyful because that will also increase your intensity and your fervency. Thank you guys very much. Love you, and I'll see you after the service if you want to say hi.